together. And today we'll be looking at 2 Peter chapter 2. The first chapter of this letter was written to encourage the church to continue in the teachings of the apostles. Peter has spent some time demonstrating that the teachings are from eyewitnesses of of the accounts of Jesus and that all the prophecy of Scripture was made by the movement of the Holy Spirit in men spoken from God. With this defense of the truth of the Scriptures ringing in our ears, Peter begins his warning of the false prophets who have come and will continue to do so. Peter will, very shortly after this letter is written, end up demonstrating the depth of his faith by being martyred for the cause of Christ. You might sense Peter's urgency in sharing the concern that when he's gone, teachers who may be teaching falsehoods will infiltrate the church. He's warning them to be on the lookout for those leaders that deny not only the word of God, but the deity of Christ himself. He wants them and us to realize that only the depth of their, not only the depth of their depravity, but their motivation for leading people astray and the result of their deception. Of course, the people who are led astray by this teaching may also suffer if they do not recognize it and return to the truth. Peter and the other apostles address this problem, understanding how important it is for people to hear and follow God's word and not the ramblings of false prophets. While we'll cover this entire chapter this morning, we're going to begin by reading verses 1 to 9. So if you would turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 and follow along in your Bible or on the screens, we'll read verses 1 to 9. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there also will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words." Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, By reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. May God bless the reading of his word. So Peter begins here with the word but. We've talked about that a bunch of times. It means we need to look back a little bit. Um, And he is continuing his thoughts from the end of chapter 1. So if we were to look at verses 20 and 21 at the end of chapter 1, 
And this also starts with a but. <laughs> but now, this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of someone's own inter interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Even though the prophets spoke things that were from God, false prophets still appeared, wanting to change the prophecy to something they wanted, or perhaps to eliminate it altogether. They acted in their own will and for their own gain. Look in verse 1 at how these false prophets introduce their teachings. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And this same sentiment is echoed in Jude, verse 4. If you'll go there, or follow on the screen. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into indecent behavior and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These are people who find their way into the church without being noticed. They are deceivers. Notice that Jude states, just as Peter does, that these false prophets deny the deity of Jesus Christ. You might be wondering, how could someone like that be in our midst? If you needed to sneak into the midst of a group of people, how would you do that? Well, first of all, you will want to appear as if you belong. The idea of a wolf in sheep's clothing sneaking into the flock. Someone doing such a thing has planned on taking advantage of the situation. This is not a member of the flock that becomes a wolf. They come in as a wolf. And according to Peter, they are secretly introducing heresies into the conversation. Most likely starting by questioning something, then providing their own answer that serves their purpose. They could hide behind a ministry or a service, like the money changers at the temple. Jesus called it a den of thieves. Look at verse 2. It says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Peter states that many will follow. This means that deception works. Once again, we ask, how can this be? It works because the false prophet knows that we all battle with things in our life. And if he can make it sound as if it's too hard to do because we're looking at it the wrong way, or that God really doesn't expect this out of us, because we find it easier to accept his explanation and give in to our own desires and set aside God's will, he quickly finds a listening ear and an audience for his heresies. This is especially true for young and vulnerable people. Many times we see the word sensuality and we assume this applies to sexual sins only. And, and while the deception may end there, it may begin with something that looks quite benign. 
Other Bible translations use words like pernicious, destructive, depraved, indecent behavior, immoral ways, instead of sensuality. And if you are introducing such things and trying to do it without calling attention to yourself, you would need to be very careful. This person leans on whatever sin is the most attractive to a person or a group of people and paints a picture where this isn't such a bad thing. Once you've been convinced of this fact, moving on to more and more depraved behavior is easier. And many who follow this path end up with a view of God's word that is not only distorted, but it is certainly false. We do have a defense against such people, and it is the truth. It is the word of God that we use not only to reveal the intent of God for our lives, but to recognize this false prophet. Peter goes on in verse 3 to further describe this person and their ultimate destiny. He says, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The false prophet seeks to gain something from their deception. This greed or this desire for something they don't have doesn't have to be monetary. It can be a desire for power, notoriety. It also may be more a case of evil than any of those things, with a desire to turn people from God simply because they hate God. Peter tells us their future judgment is sealed. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He gives us three examples of how God has dealt with rampant sin in the past. Look at verses 4 to 6. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Then the Lord, obviously, is going to punish these wicked people. First example here he uses are the angels that have sinned and are cast into and committed to the pits of darkness. The word hell used here is tatarao. It would be translated as Gehenna. It is a term used by the Greeks to denote a place where spirits are sent to be punished. We can't miss the fact that Peter is speaking of punishing angels. If God punishes angels, then he certainly will punish humans. The second example is that of the ancient world prior to the flood. While he preserved Noah and his family, he flooded the world of ungodly people. I find it interesting that we only get to chapter 6 of Genesis. And the world has become corrupt. You say, how does this happen? It's the same question we ask about false teachers. How do they creep in? How, do they, how does this happen? Let's look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 13. Genesis 6, 5 to 13. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, 
and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Doesn't sound that far from some of the things that go on today, does it? But Noah, he found favor with God. Noah walked with God, and so God chose to save him and his family from destruction. As for everything else, unless it was preserved by the ark, it was destroyed. God could not look upon what man had become. It grieved his heart, and therefore he wiped it all out. The third example is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God rained down fire from heaven and reduced the cities to ashes. We've already seen that God saved the righteous Noah and his family from destruction, and in the same way, he preserved Lot and his family from destruction in Sodom. In verse 7 and 8, Peter addresses the righteousness of Lot. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Peter speaks of how Lot lived in a city where he was constantly exposed to all sorts of sin. And their lawless deeds were a torment to his soul. And we might struggle with calling Lot a righteous man. Remember that Lot is Abraham's nephew. He came to Canaan with Abraham and Sarah. And when the hired hands of their flocks began to argue over areas to feed, Abraham let Lot choose where he wanted to settle. And he chose the valley of the Jordan. It was well watered and would suit his flocks well. While Abraham settled in the land of Canaan. Lot ended up in Sodom, a city known to be exceedingly wicked. We might wonder why a man who is deemed righteous by God would do such a thing. We know from the account of Lot in Scripture that he was far from perfect. He offered his two daughters to the sinful men to protect the two angels sent to him. He later was made drunk with wine by his two daughters and bore sons by them. In Genesis 19.29, we read that God also remembered Abraham when he saved Lot. Look at Genesis 19.29. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. 
This is a reference to Abraham's concern about how many righteous people it would take for God to preserve the cities. Abraham's plan was to save the cities. Notice God's plan involves saving the righteous. And that was Lot and his family. I think there's a caution here for us. God saw Lot as righteous because he saw a righteous soul. Something we can't see. And we need to use caution in our assessment of others. For if there was a book written about any one of us and our life, how righteous would we look? Verse 9, then, is seen as good news for the godly and bad news for the unrighteous, both of which God can easily recognize. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Wonderful news for the righteous. Now, Peter goes back in verse 15, or verse 10, to start describing these unrighteous and false teachers in more detail. Look at 2 Peter 10 to 15. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. He's speaking of these teachers. They're daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels, who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Peter speaks especially here of the false teachers who indulge in all of the desires of the flesh and despise the authority of God who has designed us in a certain way. God defines godliness and sinfulness for us. He calls these people daring and self-willed, despising and neglecting the will of God. They go so far, he says, as to revile or blaspheme the angels without trembling. The angels are, as Peter writes, greater in might and power, yet the false prophets seem to judge them. And the angels themselves do not bring judgments before the Lord, for they know the Lord alone will judge. Peter goes on by comparing these people to animals, unreasoning creatures of instinct, of their own will, acting on their own will, who will be destroyed as animals are captured and killed. They revile or blaspheme where they have no knowledge. They deny the deity of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles and insert their own words, which are spoken without the knowledge that they would profess. Peter completes his thought from verse 
12 in verse 13 and continues his description of the false prophet. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. False prophet will suffer the price for doing wrong. Have no doubt. Peter calls them stains and blemishes when they revel in their own deceit. Some versions of the Bible do not use the word carouse uh, that we see in verse 13. We probably think of carousing as going out and doing something we shouldn't do. I know if my father, if he said that I was out carousing the night before, that was not a good thing, and I was going to get in some serious trouble. Um, there, are some, there are some translations that use the term feasting with. Um, these are commentaries that refer to the love feast, which was part of a celebration that culminated in celebrating the Lord's Supper. Peter sees the hypocrisy in the false prophet attending such events and appearing as a righteous man. He goes on in verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Peter accuses these men of viewing every woman as a partner in sexual sin. They never cease in this sin. Cult leaders many times look just like this accusation. Peter accuses them of preying on the unstable souls. James gives us another glimpse of what these unstable souls are in James 1, verses 5 to 8. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is a person that's struggling with their faith. The kind of person who shows up in church one Sunday, and the next Sunday they're doing something that they know they shouldn't do. And they are wavering. Perhaps the woman he sees is this vulnerable person. They are very vulnerable to the influence from the false prophet. And the false prophet preys on this wavering faith. The word entice can also be translated as seduce. Peter keeps right on going. Look at verses 15 to 16. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke from his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Had, Baor not been, had, uh, had Balaam not been stopped by his speaking donkey, he would have gone on to continue to ask the Lord to do something that the Lord told him he didn't want to do. And again in verse 17, these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Peter uses the metaphor of a spring without water. You can just imagine traveling at that time in a very arid land and noticing that there is a well somewhere, a spring, and as you get there, you realize that 
There's no water. It's completely dried up. That's the result of being enticed by the false prophet who promises water and yet doesn't deliver. Compared to Jesus, who promises us living water and does fulfill his promise. He also compares them to mists driven by a storm. And the storm passes before a drop of rain ever falls. Throughout this chapter, Peter has given us a very clear picture of the false prophets who will come, who they truly are, how they act. For these men, a black darkness has been reserved, and their destiny is hell, and we need to know that. And in verses 18 to 22, he tells us about the poor people who follow such a person. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Peter points out here that the false prophet seeks out those who are unstable in faith. He uses the phrase, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. These are people who have come out of the world and have heard this word. They use a logic that states that one is not saved by doing good, so therefore do what is bad, enjoy yourself, and be free. The false prophet doesn't realize he's enslaved to the very sins that he's saying people should enjoy, seeking only to do their will and living in the fleshly desires of the world. They appear free to the one who has not committed themselves to a life of following God. We realize that only in Christ do we find freedom from sin and eternal life with him. Well, the unstable person is attempting to completely escape from what Peter calls the defilements of God through the knowledge of who Christ is, the false prophet is seeking to entangle them once more in the sins that he claims are an expression of freedom. Peter claims that returning to the sinful lifestyle is worse for them because they've been exposed to the truth of who Jesus is, may have even begun to be positively influenced by other believers, but have chosen to turn their back on him and return to their original style of life. Peter claims that they're in a worse place now before they have received the knowledge of who Christ is and have turned away. Peter ends this chapter quoting Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And Peter adds his own bit of wisdom about the pig that is washed and returns to the mud. So the question is, first of all, how do we recognize this false prophet? 
And how do we keep him from influencing us and others in our church community? Our first line of defense against someone who speaks lies about the word of God is the word of God itself. We need to know what God, we need to know God's word so that we can recognize the person who is teaching something other than God's word. We must also be careful that we speak truth to the world, including those who Peter calls unstable, those who have been exposed to the truth of who Jesus is, but still not trusting in him as Savior. Our second line of defense is the local church itself. Fellow believers and the leaders of the church who have all been warned by Peter in this letter to be watchful for false prophets. The believer who is well-versed will see through the lies and deceit of such a wicked one and be able to help their brothers and sisters. The leadership of the church is charged with watching over this flock and rooting out such people. And thirdly, as always, we should be in prayer that God would protect us from the liars who deny the deity of Christ and not only live in their own sinful will, but encourage others to do the same. With that in mind, let's go to prayer. Lord, as we study, please fill our hearts and our minds with your truth. Give us a greater desire to do your will and give us the ability to quickly see the false prophets of our day. Lord, that we might not be influenced by their sin, but rather that we might speak your truth into the lives of others. Thank you for the freedom from sin that you provide as we watch a world that is in slavery to sin. Lord, protect our church from evil. Let us be your light shining in this dark, dark world. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You'll stand and join us as we sing. <laughs>